If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. I think Caesar was an extremely ambitious man, an extremely intelligent man. Uh, He's a man who I I think truly loved Rome. He really believed in in Rome and and what it stood for. But I also think he was a person who uh, was very self-interested. He wanted to further his own agenda. He wanted glory for himself. Those two parts of Caesar, I think, live together. Welcome to Episode 2 of Caesar, Death of a Dictator. We ended the first episode with Julius Caesar lying dead at the foot of the statue of one of his greatest rivals. In this episode, we're going to explore the rise of the man who would become the most famous Roman in history. Our story begins in July 100 BC, when Gaius Julius Caesar entered the world. His father, also Gaius Julius Caesar, and his mother, Aurelia, both derived from distinguished Roman families. They were patricians, a traditionally privileged group of Roman citizens, in contrast to the plebeian majority. However, by 100 BC, patrician status no longer held all the advantages it once had. One of the themes in Roman history in the early and early mid-Republic is precisely the attempt by the plebeian majority to seize political equality with the patricians by demanding and acquiring access to magistracies, access to the Senate, and so on and so forth. So by the end of the Republic, by the time we're interested in, that patrician-plebeian status, well, there's no particular disadvantage to being a plebeian. There's almost a disadvantage to being a patrician. That's Catherine Steele, Professor of Classics at the University of Glasgow. 
She's one of the experts who'll be appearing in the series. It wasn't all bad news for Caesar, though. His impressive lineage still counted for something. Set against these these practical problems, you do have the cachet of this enormously long descent, this connection with Rome's historic origins. And arguments from the past seem to be important in Roman culture, as well as a sense that men are likely to resemble their ancestors. They can use that argument from the past. And we can see Caesar using those arguments from the past, most famously, I guess, in in the funeral speech he delivers for his aunt Julia, when he uses the opportunity to praise her to remind the Roman people of his and her shared descent, both from the Julians, who who claim descent, obviously, from Aeneas, and, and later on, when Virgil comes to write the rebirth of Rome in the Aeneid for Caesar's great nephew and adoptive son. He's he's very keen indeed to showcase the, the story of Aeneas and, and Aeneas's connections with the foundation of Rome. And also Caesar, when he gives his funeral speech for his aunt, also refers to her descent from the Marquis, which he also shared, who were another ancient family. So his background as a patrician would seem to, to give him status and an expectation that he will have a political career which serves the Republic. My second expert for today's episode is Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, author of a biography of Julius Caesar. Here's his take on Caesar's family background. Well, I think he was shaped quite a bit by his upbringing because he came from the most noble blood of ancient Rome, this great family that traced its ancestry all the way back to Aeneas and the goddess Venus. But he also grew up in the slums of Rome. So he was this fascinating character of an incredibly rich background of the highest nobility of Rome, but he grew up among the common people. So uh, he grew up in the area where there were lots of immigrants, lots of foreigners, there were prostitutes. There were people who were poor, so he knew something about the struggle that the average Romans went through. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Caesar was thrust into the violent maelstrom of Roman politics at a very young age. In 85 BC, while he was still in his mid-teens, Caesar's father died, leaving him head of the family. This was at a time when Rome was engulfed in civil war between two factions, one headed by Caesar's uncle, Gaius Marius, and the other by Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Caesar's fortunes seemed to depend on the success of his uncle's faction, and in 84 BC he married Cornelia, the daughter of Marius's key ally, tying him closer to the cause. Yet in the civil wars it was Sulla who ultimately triumphed, putting Caesar in significant danger. Sulla became Roman dictator, a role that Caesar himself would famously come to occupy many decades later. Sulla chose to spare Caesar, but demanded that he divorce Cornelia. Yet, at tremendous risk to his own life, Caesar refused. Sulla had been dictator. He took over the Roman government. He executed many of his enemies, and he wanted to kill Caesar too. But Caesar actually stood up to him. Caesar was young at this time, but he had married early in a political marriage, uh, and Sulla demanded that he get divorced. And Caesar refused, which nobody did to Sulla and lived. So Caesar refused, and then he went on the run and hiding from Sulla's agents throughout Italy. So I think, uh, and in the end, Sulla forgave him, but Sulla said, uh, this young man is going to cause a lot of trouble for Rome in the future. I think what Caesar learned is that there are certain times that you have to stand up, even when it puts you at great risk. And he did this in the rest of his life. With Sulla in power, Caesar wisely kept his distance from Rome, serving in the Roman army in Asia. Notably, he led a brilliant attack on the Greek city of Mytilene, earning a civic crown for his efforts. It's clear that even at this early stage, he was showing great military abilities, something that would be demonstrated again and again in his career. But that was only one string to his bow. Following the death of Sulla in 78 BC, Caesar, still only in his early 20s, returned to Rome and embarked on a legal career, where his powerful oratory drew many plaudits. One of the most dramatic episodes in Caesar's young life occurred in 75 BC. He was travelling by ship to the island of Rhodes to study with a distinguished Greek scholar when he was captured by pirates. When he was taken captive, he was held for a ransom, which was standard procedure. And he would tell the pirates every day, I'm going to come back here and kill you guys uh, as soon as I'm released. I'm going to organize the army and we're going to come back and, and crucify all of you. And they just laughed because here's this brash young man uh, saying this to them. But that's exactly what he did. And this seems very much to be a carefully planned propaganda coup. This is the kind of story he wants people back in Rome to know, so that they know that you can't mess with Caesar, and also that they know that he will defend the interests of the Roman state to the hilt. Having survived this episode, Caesar began to climb the rungs of the Roman political ladder. He was elected military tribune, and then in 69 AD he became a quaestor, a fairly lowly administrative position, but one that might well lead to better things. This was a year of great significance for Caesar, because it also witnessed the deaths of his wife Cornelia and his aunt Julia, for whom he delivered the powerful oration that Catherine mentioned earlier in the episode. 
We get a clear sense of Caesar's powerful ambition in 63 AD, when he stood for election as Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of Rome. His opponents were respected members of the Roman Senate, who should have easily seen off their young challenger. But, with the help of a significant amount of bribery, Caesar triumphed. He was becoming a key player in the higher echelons of the Roman state. But what kind of a politician was he? What kind of views was he espousing? With Caesar, the important thing to know about him is that he was a populist. There were different parties, if you will, different persuasions in the Roman government. And there were the senatorial party, the men who wanted things to stay the way they always had been, uh, men such as Cato and Cicero to a certain extent. Uh, But Caesar was part of the populist party in which he wanted change uh, within certain parameters, certainly. But we can think of it uh, in in modern terms, liberal and conservative, Republican or Democrat in, in America. Caesar was definitely in the liberal or democratic camp. Two years later, Caesar was appointed governor of the province of Further Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula. In this role, he achieved both political and military success. His battlefield victories were so impressive that the Roman Senate granted him a victory parade known as a triumph. Here Caesar stood at one of the great crossroads of his career. A Roman triumph was a tremendous honour, but he was also hoping to stand for election as consul, effectively the highest political office in Rome. Roman law dictated that a general preparing for a triumph had to wait outside the city's walls, but to stand for consul, he needed to be present within the city as a private citizen. The idea of turning down a triumph seemed preposterous, so Caesar's rivals in the Senate believed they'd thwarted him, at least temporarily. But things did not go as they had planned. He simply says, well, fine. I I won't bother with the triumph. I'm going to come and stand for the consulship. And that gesture of giving up an apparently extraordinary reward in order to get an even greater one, the consulship, as soon as possible, is another striking gesture, which, yes, we use it in order to say he's ambitious, but as far as we can tell, it happened and it, it reflects a particular view of where power lay and what his aims were. Caesar had reached the pinnacle of Roman politics as one of two elected consuls. It gave him an opportunity to pursue his own political agenda, but it was an office that was only held for a single year, and he needed a plan for what would come after. It was at around this time that Caesar formed an alliance with two of the other key figures in late Republican Rome, Marcus Licinius Crassus and Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus. Crassus was Rome's wealthiest man, while Pompey was its greatest military hero. Along with Caesar, they formed an informal first triumvirate, strengthening Caesar's position as he pushed through a populist political agenda during his year as consul. He shows a a willingness to disregard normal conventions in terms of how he handles that year, whilst at the same time tactically circumventing his opponents in ways that is really elegant to watch unfolding. He works directly with the people through a popular tribune. And one of the key things to how he manages to circumvent the Senate is precisely the demonstration of his close relationship with the Roman people. And his policies often did reflect what the people wanted, notably a major distribution of land and a law to prevent extortion in the provinces. All the time he was becoming ever more popular with the Roman people, while conservatives in the Senate eyed him increasingly warily. Caesar's next move took him away from Rome and back onto the battlefield. 
he was made governor of three provinces, covering parts of the Balkans, northern Italy and southern Gaul. Much of Gaul remained unconquered by Rome, and here began one of the defining episodes of Caesar's illustrious career. The Gallic Wars occupied much of the rest of the decade, and by defeating one tribe after another, Caesar added Gaul to the Roman Empire. His armies were on the brink of disaster many times, but ultimately Caesar was always able to prevail. There's little doubt that he was a brilliant military leader. I think he was. I think that really is what it comes down to. Like Alexander the Great and Hannibal before him, he was a person who could read the land, who knew how to fight a battle against odds that were overwhelming, because they usually were. He was usually outnumbered. Uh, But he came up with these incredibly innovative strategies for fighting enemies, and he was incredibly organized. The Romans were particularly good at fighting as a unit, whereas the Gauls, although they were incredibly brave, they fought as individuals individuals in mass. And if you have a small group of very organized, very well-trained warriors, uh, you can almost always defeat the Germans or the Celts or whoever it is, no matter how brave they are. But as well as being brilliant, Caesar could also be merciless. It was a brutal time, and Caesar was no different from any other general who lived in those days. Alexander the Great, I mentioned, uh, was also brutal. Hannibal was brutal. Caesar killed perhaps a million Gauls during the course of the war. He captured as many, maybe, as slaves and sold them uh, all around the Mediterranean. So yes, brutality was, quite simply, the way things were done. And if Caesar were alive in the modern world, he would be on trial uh, in The Hague for war crimes. But that was not the way it was in the ancient world. So how should we think about this today when we're assessing Caesar? Should the campaigns in Gaul be a huge black mark against his name? That's always the trick, and it's something I I talk about with my university students. How do we view people in the past? And I think as much as we have to be aware of our own standards and how others in the past didn't live up to them, we really have to take them in the context of their own day. It's the only way to do it, just in the same way that people in the future will judge you and me. They will say, oh, how could they do that? But how could we do otherwise? We're products of the environment in which we grow up in. Now, as we're based in Britain, it would seem remiss not to touch on Caesar's two campaigns here in 55 and 54 BC. They're a major milestone in the history of ancient Britain. But how integral was this to the career of Rome's future dictator? Well, it's interesting, not to insult the people of Britain, but Britain actually wasn't that important to Caesar, except as a public relations campaign. He invaded Britain twice. He, uh, The first time when he invaded, he almost got killed by the Britons. Everything went wrong. Uh, but he wanted to sail beyond the known boundaries of the world, and Gaul was barely known to the Romans, but Britain was just this island that was somewhere out across the sea. And so for him to sail over, and he didn't conquer Britain. He won battles there. But for him to cross the English Channel and to go into Britain was a great public relations act on his part. And that's exactly why he did it. There was nothing to be gained in Britain except glory. So apologies to all our listeners at home, but Britain wasn't a big deal in this story. The conquest of Gaul very much was, though. 
He entered it as a man who was a great general. He, he knew what he was doing, but uh, he was uh, greatly at risk. If he had lost that war, he, he was so much in debt. But he fought this war for eight years, and, and he won, and he conquered Gaul, and he gave him not only military glory, but uh, it gave him money. He got money from the sale of slaves, from the capture of treasure. So it was truly the event in Caesar's life. And here's Catherine's take on it. It's an extraordinary achievement, but part of the extraordinariness needs to be seen in terms of how it's perceived in Rome. Because what it does that I think would have been breathtaking was in its geographical ambition. Caesar is the first Roman commander to break away from the Mediterranean. I mean, in a northwestward direction. But this this willingness to get away from the Mediterranean would have just been breathtaking, I think. And it's evident in, in the poetry of the 50s that we can see this sudden geographical reimagining of what Rome is and of what the the inhabited world is, when you suddenly can think we might be able to touch Britain, for example, or Germany. And that sense of spaciousness is supported by Caesar's extraordinary propaganda efforts by writing the Bellum Gallicum. The astonishing quality of that work is, I think, obscured by its role in education, at least up until the 1980s, I guess. You know, the fact that you were flogged through it as, a, as an example of Latin prose style. Even that is extraordinary. I mean, the, the Latin that Caesar writes, we, we kind of tend to be indoctrinated to think that this is what Latin should be like. It isn't until he writes it. It is the most extraordinary work. But despite the triumph in Gaul, there were storm clouds on the horizon. The first triumvirate that had helped sustain Caesar's power was beginning to disintegrate. Crassus, Caesar's wealthy backer, decided to embark on his own military expedition to the eastern kingdom of Parthia in 54 BC. But his military capabilities did not match those of his ally. Crassus takes his armies off to fight the Parthians and it goes horribly wrong and he is killed at the Battle of Carii and his head apparently taken off and used as a prop in a performance of Euripides in front of the victorious Parthian king. One member of the First Triumvirate was dead. That left just Caesar and Pompey, two giants of the Roman Republic. Within less than a decade, both would be murdered. Next time on Caesar, Death of a Dictator, we'll be exploring the final years of Julius Caesar's life. It's a tale of civil war, dictatorship, political rivalries, and an encounter with the most iconic woman in ancient history. Thanks to my experts for this episode, Catherine Steele, Professor of Classics at the University of Glasgow, and Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University. This podcast was written and presented by me, Rob Attar, with additional checks by Rob Blackmore and our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. The producer was Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.